Hello and welcome to the third and final part of Remembering Afghanistan through Robert Fisk. In the previous part, we went over some encounters that Fisk had with Soviet troops as well as Afghan rebels. We understood that, at least according to Fisk, the idea that war is good guys versus bad guys is most of the time, if not all the time, a fabrication, a manufactured drama of opposites. We also established that Afghan society is diverse in ethnic, religious, and socio-economic terms, just like many other places in the world today. But what I left the episode on was the fact that among the rebels were outsiders, people from all over the Arabic-speaking world, being seen fighting the Soviet troops also. Not only would Fisk discover this interesting element, but he would also interview one of these Arabs fighting in Afghanistan, that being Osama bin Laden, and he would do so three times. Two of these times would be in Afghanistan, in the post-Soviet Afghan war period. So I will try to hit two birds with one stone, and look at the religious element, as well as build a picture of post-war Afghanistan. Needless to say, the conclusion of the Soviet-Afghan war is far from a happy ending. We will begin by trying to answer a question. In Fisk's account, when he first hears the rumours of Arabs being seen in the countryside of Jalalabad, he is doubtful. The communist Afghan government, headed by Babrak Karmal, was not always entirely honest, and the claims of Arab terrorists supporting Afghan terrorists seemed far-fetched to him. Fisk would specifically ask himself why Saudis, among Arabs from other parts, would be all the way in Afghanistan fighting the Soviet Union as it did not really seem to make much sense. Now, he did not have the gift of hindsight. He went into Afghanistan during the first months of the war, and throughout his account, you get the sense that he is slowly coming to terms with the fact that the Soviet-Afghan war was not just about rural tribes that did not want foreign invaders and influence. Clues are given to us, here and there, that alongside the desire to kick out the foreign Soviet invaders came this religious element, some of it spiritual, a lot of it political. It was the use of the Islamic faith as a basis for rule and governance, the idea that religion belonged in the public sphere and not the private sphere. And this is the common denominator that is shared between those Arabs who came to fight and the Afghan rebels. It is the source of their brotherhood, their solidarity. Before I discuss my limited understanding of this any further, there are at least a couple of incredible moments in Fisk's account which serve as these clues of the spiritual and political mood that Afghanistan was in at the time. During the early days of Fisk's time in Afghanistan in January of 1980, the Afghan government will make a move to try and increase its popularity, but it will go horribly wrong. They would officially release 118 political prisoners from the infamous, and forgive my pronunciation here, Pulicharhi prison, which is on the outskirts of Kabul. Most of them, if not all of them, would have been imprisoned during the terrible reign of the previous ruler, Hafizullah Amin, who I mentioned briefly in part one. Fisk would be outside the prison walls, and this is what he would witness. Thousands of Afghans, relatives of inmates, many of them in long cloaks and turbans, gathered this time outside the Pulicharhi prison, a grim fortress of high stone walls, barbed wire, jail blocks, and torture cells to witness the official release of 118 political prisoners. 
but enraged that so few had been freed, the crowd burst through an Afghan army cordon and broke open the iron gates. We ran into the prison with them, a Russian soldier next to me almost thrown off his feet. He stared, transfixed by the sight, as men and women, the latter in the all-covering burqa, began shouting, Allahu Akbar, God is great, through the outer compound, and they began to climb over the steel gates of the main prison blocks. Gavin and I looked at each other in wonderment. This was a religious, as much as it was a political protest. Now Fisk does a very sweet thing here. He translated the quintessential Arabic Islamic proclamation, Allahu Akbar, into God is great. But there is a little footnote there explaining that the truest translation would be God is greatest. However, to Fisk's English ears, saying something is greatest was too close to how people uh, would praise football teams or soccer teams if you're from the USA um, in England. And as Fisk astutely points out, football teams and the nature of the divine are not quite the same thing. And so his twist on the translation, he argues, more powerfully reflects the faith to Western ears. Now this phrase, Allahu Akbar, would sadly be associated with terror attacks over the years. Whenever reports of someone carrying out some sort of attack would emerge, one of the little details people will look out for is if such words were heard during the incident. Not to forget the use of this phrase by the Islamic State during their often brutal, violent propaganda videos which were proudly shared by them. But this phrase is used every day during prayers. It is one of celebration and exaltation. We will also find that for the Afghans, on more than one occasion, it is one of defiance. As this crowd surged through the outer compound to the second gate, Fisk would look on as another Russian soldier, this time on the roof, would raise his rifle at the burgeoning mass. He would shout something in Russian. Apparently, there were only eight people left in the prison, but they would soon find out that this was a lie. This is what happens next. For a moment, the crowd paused as the officer swung his rifle barrel in their direction, then heeded him no more, and surged on the second, newly broken gate. Hopelessly outnumbered, the soldier lowered his weapon. Hundreds of other prisoners' relatives now smashed the windows of the cell blocks with rocks, and used steel pipes to break in the doors of the first building. Three prisoners were suddenly led into the winter sunlight by their liberators, middle-aged men in rags, thin and frail and dazed, and blinking at the snow and ice-covered walls. A young man came up to me in the prison as crowds began to break in the roof of a second concrete cell block. We want Russians to go, he said in English. We want independent Afghanistan. We want families released. My brother and father are here somewhere. It is at this point that Fisk and his colleagues, he earlier mentions Gavin Hewitt of the BBC and Connor O'Cleary of the Irish Times, uh, who would be acting as their Russian interpreter, would seize the opportunity at seeing the inside of the prison and join the surging crowd. And this is what Fisk sees. Blankets had been laid on the stone floor by the inmates as their only protection against the extreme cold. There was a musty, stale smell in the tiny airless cells. Across the compound, other prisoners waved through the bars of windows, screaming at the crowd to release them. One man in baggy peasant trousers bashed open a hatch in a metal roof of a cell and slid inside, shouting to his friends, 
to follow him. Just a quick aside, I remember reading that sentence twice when I first came across it, realizing with horror that some of these cells were essentially metal boxes in the ground and pictured how the guards must have walked around overhead at any time of day or night. But to carry on, I climbed through a window in the end of the same cell block and was confronted by at least 20 men sitting on the floor amid chains and straw, eyes wide with horror and relief. One held out his hand to me. It was so thin I felt only his bones. His cheeks were sunken and blue, his teeth missing, his open chest covered in scars. And all this while, the Russian soldiers and Afghan guards stood watching, unable to control the thousands of men and women, aware that any public bloodletting would cause irreparable damage to the Karmal regime. Some of the crowd abused the Russians, and one youth, who said he was from the Paktia province, screamed at me that Russians are, uh, quote-unquote, bombing and killing in South Afghanistan. Fisk would again mention what he calls the Islamic chants from the crowd and explains their significance when he says, But the most notable phenomenon about this amazing prison break-in were the Islamic chants from the crowds. Several men shouted for an Islamic revolution, something the Russians had long feared in Afghanistan and in their own Muslim republics. Many of the youths looking for their relatives came from rural areas to the south of Kabul, where tribal rebellion had been growing for at least 14 months. Now it turns out, as Fisk explains, that releasing a few political prisoners does nothing but remind people of the rest of the political prisoners being held, of the ongoing injustice. If 118 is a small number, then it gives you an idea of the repression, the authoritarianism that Afghan society was under in the previous years. In a tragic repeat of history, very similar events have happened in the Pulicharhi prison when the Taliban took Kabul recently. In a correspondence by the BBC, inmates would speak of torture and neglect, how prisoners from the Taliban would organize themselves inside the prison into a sort of prison society with some order and some semblance of protection, feeding off each other's faith, defiance and very thoughts. One of these tortured inmates being interviewed, Hafizullah Afzal, would be from a rural village, just like those inmates in 1980, and would say how he joined the Taliban after his village was attacked and children were killed. Hafizullah is now a caretaker of the empty prison, and one wonders if it will stay empty and unused under Taliban rule, or if its dark, cold cells would hold their enemies in turn. But there is a second incident where you have that strong religious, spiritual energy being expressed in a way that, to me, sounds like it is from a legend. I certainly imagine it is a legend for the local Afghans who live in that place, and that the people who lived during that time tell their children stories of it to this day. This place is Afghanistan's ancient capital, Kandahar. It would be February of 1980, and Fisk would have two days left on his visa before it expires and he is forced out of Afghanistan. As before, he would look upon a map in his hotel room and decide to go to Kandahar because he had heard rumours of their defiance in the face of curfews and the Soviet occupation. Just like his trip to Mazar-e-Sharif, which I mentioned in part two, he would go to Kabul's bus station well before dawn, again dressed in an Afghan hat and a long brown shawl. 
This time, however, when he is open about his nationality, the locals on the bus greet him with fruit, cheese, and bread, and they give him their silent protection on a 14-hour journey across a frozen landscape. The Soviet-Afghan war is now in full swing, and Fisk saw the epic of a country at war. Vehicles, mostly civilian, reduced to burnt-out husks, some still engulfed in flames or belching out columns of black smoke. In some cases, the blackened remains of their unfortunate passengers by their side. Every Soviet convoy that passes features soldiers at the back of their trucks, pistols drawn and at the ready. They were not taking chances. And as Fisk comments, too busy protecting themselves and unable to protect the populace from what they call bandits. Tajik Soviet soldiers were seen without the Red Star Soviet symbol on their hats and uniforms. They had ripped them off and were refusing to fight their fellow Muslims. Again, we see the common denominator of religious faith at work. But the main event is in Kandahar itself, and as always, Fisk would beautifully set the scene just before it. It was night when we entered Kandahar, the ancient capital of Afghanistan, our bus gliding past the shrine in which lay the cloak of the Prophet Muhammad, circling a set of 19th century cannon that had belonged to General Robert's army in the Second Afghan War. I was dirty and tired and checked into a seedy hotel in the old city, a place of cigarette smoke, sweat and overcooked meat. My bedroom was small, the sheets stained, the threadbare carpet smallpoxed with cigarette burns, but two big, rust-encrusted doors led onto a tiny balcony from where I could see the moon and the stars which glistened across the winter sky. I was laying on my bed when I first heard the sound. Allahu Akbar, God is great. It was a thin, pitched wail. Allahu Akbar, God is great. I looked at my watch. This was no fixed time for prayers. It was nine o'clock. The curfew had just begun. Now, just a quick aside here. What he's referring to is uh, the adhan, or the call to prayer. Uh, Muslims pray five times a day, depending on the physical time. So, you know, for example, just before daybreak, uh, at midday, and so on. And one of those times is after sunset. And so, when the time comes to pray, there is a call to prayer that begins with the, well, the, the phrase, Allahu Akbar, being said twice, and then the rest of it. Now the chant came from the next roof scarcely twenty meters from my room, more a yodel than an appeal to the Almighty. I opened the door to the balcony. The cry was being heard on the air, a dozen, a hundred Allahu Akbars, uncoordinated, overlaying each other, building upon a foundation of identical words, high-pitched and tenor, treble and childlike, an army of voices shouting from the rooftops of Kandahar. They swelled in volume, a thousand now, ten thousand, a choir that filled the heavens, that floated beneath the white moon and stars, the music of the spheres. This is one of the few moments in his book where I wish I was there to see and hear for myself. This moment would also inspire the title of the very chapter, The Choirs of Kandahar. Fisk would describe this instance as more of a spiritual rather than political as opposed to the prison breakout at Pulicharki prison. Ultimately, I hope that it gives you an idea of just how strong of an influence Islam as a religion was at the time, how it had this overarching presence 
in the social fabric during the war. Religious faith and how strong it is, is one of these factors that you can't quite quantify and measure, and that can change everything. What I say next might be taken in bad faith, so I want to make several things clear from the outset. The idea of political Islamism has many forms, some of which may employ violence and be called extreme. But, and it is important to remember this, there are approximately 1 billion Muslims in the world, and so the acts of a movement, a group, or whatever, does not reflect upon the whole, as it would be a gross generalization. And the same goes for any large groups of people. Secondly, religions in general, and Islam in particular, have a very wide scope of interpretation and application, and this is down to the structure of certain religions, which I might talk about at a different time, although I am uh, not as knowledgeable as others, for sure. But just to give you an idea, even the cloak of the Prophet Muhammad mentioned by Fisk, revered at the shrine in Kandahar, would be taken by certain interpretations of the faith as what is called in Arabic bid'ah or spiritual innovations which are just as bad as idol worship and to be destroyed. It reminds me of the Protestant Christian movements in Germany where you had accounts of them entering Catholic churches and stomping on the bones of saints, decrying their reverence as idol worship. Now as for what I want to say, when it comes to traditionalist conservative movements, as we see in Afghanistan, religion is often used as the justification. This is not just true for Islam. Christian movements in Europe and the USA, in relation to things like the abortion debate and same-sex marriage, also come to mind. Apart from conservative or traditionalist movements using religion as their bedrock, so to speak, there is another feature which is relevant to the fact that Arabs, including Saudis, are fighting in Afghanistan. And that is the idea that religion the divine, faith, and those who practice your faith all transcend the more artificial social constructs. This includes the borders of modern nation-states. Previously I uh, briefly mentioned how the Afghan-Pakistani border was a legacy of British imperialism, drawn by Mortimer Durand, a British civil servant. It is easy to forget just how artificial and even young the very ideas of modern nation-states and citizenship are relative to humanity's history. When it comes to Islam specifically, there is a general principle or idea that Muslims are duty-bound to help their brothers and sisters in faith, especially if they are being oppressed, occupied, or they face some sort of injustice or even poverty. The question of course is, how do you help? For many, the practice of charity or zakat, in this case, is common, and it is one of the pillars of the faith but for others, they would demand and take more direct action. A jihad, a holy struggle, a noble endeavor of a particular kind, though, as it is often pointed out, jihad does not have to mean violence or war, it can be any sort of struggle or endeavor, and this is the wide scope of interpretation at play. One of those people would be Osama bin Laden. One of the CIA's plans to help the rebellion against the Afghan government and Soviet invaders would be to approach the Saudi royal family with a suggestion. The idea was that one of their royal princes would raise an Arab legion and go to Afghanistan to help liberate, and I'm putting that word in quotes, their fellow Muslims. This would increase their popularity 
and restore what Fisk calls the honour of the Gulf Arab warrior, but they refused. Osama bin Laden, himself a Saudi citizen of Yemeni descent, was outraged at this. He saw the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan as a humiliation against his fellow Muslims. He also happened to be a multi-billion dollar businessman who owned a construction company. So instead of looking on, he made his way to Afghanistan and used his wealth to buy weapons and recruit fighters from across the Arab world. We would also find out he'd even constructed roads and tracks through the mountains and dug shelters into the sides of mountains for the fighters. He would find himself in the thick of the fighting there and even close to death. During that period, he would be seen as a legend, a role model, a hero. He put his money where his mouth is and gave up a life of ease and luxury to do what he believed was right. He was in Afghanistan, commanding from the front lines and rubbing shoulders with death. Most importantly, he was fighting an enemy of the Americans and the West. We all know what he is known for today, the September 11th attacks of 2001, an infliction of destruction and death that was captured on television screens and which seemed to start off the new century with a new war, the war on terror. And in the aftermath of the September 11th attacks, as people began to dig into who this bin Laden was, what he did in Afghanistan, and why he attacked the USA, an old newspaper clipping would be found and widely shared. It featured Osama bin Laden standing, smiling awkwardly in his robes with a large, dark beard, seemingly in the middle of nowhere, and it was titled, Anti-Soviet Warrior Puts His Army on the Road to Peace. This article would be written by none other than Robert Fisk for The Independent during his first encounter with Osama bin Laden in 1993. Fisk would be attending a conference of Islamic nations in Khartoum, the capital of Sudan. A fellow journalist, Jamal Khashoggi, the very journalist who would be murdered by Saudi Arabian authorities later, would approach Fisk and tell him that he had a friend, and I put that word in quotes, that wishes to meet him. They would go to a small village called Al-Matig where Bin Laden was building a much-needed highway. There he would be sitting under the canopy of a tent, surrounded by admiring Sudanese villagers, waiting to thank him for building a road that would link their simple village to the capital, something that for some reason or another was never done by any Sudanese government. It is apparently also the first time that Osama Bin Laden would meet a Western journalist, and Fisk's first impressions as written in his book, is not what you would expect. Now remember that this is in 1993, eight years before the September 11 attacks. My first impression was of a shy man, with his high cheekbones, narrow eyes, and long brown robe. He would avert his eyes when the village elders addressed him. He seemed ill at ease with gratitude, incapable of responding with a full smile when children in miniature chadors danced in front of him and preachers admired his wisdom. We have been waiting for this road through all the revolutions in Sudan, a bearded sheikh announced. We waited until we had given up on everybody, and then Osama bin Laden came along. I noticed how bin Laden, head still bowed, peered at the old man, acknowledging his age, but unhappy that he should be sitting at ease in front of him, a young man relaxing before his elders. He was even more unhappy at the sight of a westerner standing a few feet away from him, and from time to time he would turn his head to look at me, not with malevolence, 
but with grave suspicion. The book would then describe how Jamal Khashoggi, the late Saudi Arabian journalist, would embrace bin Laden, showing a bond that they both formed during the Soviet invasion in Afghanistan. Khashoggi as a journalist, bin Laden as a warrior. Fisk then carries on, describing him. Bin Laden was a tall man, and he realized that this was an advantage when he shook hands with the English reporter. His hands were firm, not strong, but yes, he looked like a mountain man. The eyes searched your face. He was lean and had long fingers, and a smile which, while it could never be described as kind, did not suggest villainy. He said we might talk at the back of the tent, where we could avoid the shouting of children. Looking back now, knowing what we know, understanding the monstrous beast figure he would become in the collective imagination of the world, I searched for some clue, the tiniest piece of evidence that this man could inspire an act that would change the world forever, or, more to the point, allow an American president to persuade his people that the world was changed forever. But the story of how Fisk would meet Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan is like something out of a thriller. On a hot summer's day in 1996, Fisk was sitting at his desk in Beirut, Lebanon, when he received a mysterious phone call from an unknown man. This man would cryptically say that a friend, in quotation marks, that Fisk met in Sudan wants to see him again. And when this mysterious man clarifies that it was a man he interviewed, Fisk figures out very quickly who he means. The man then gives a very simple instruction. Go to Jalalabad. You will be contacted. If you were to think that cryptic telephone calls and vague instructions meant that bin Laden was not just a legendary figure of the time, but also a wanted man already, then you wouldn't be wrong. Yes, the CIA helped the Mujahideen of Afghanistan, but when the Soviets pulled out, they turned upon each other and fought against bin Laden's organization, Al-Qaeda as well. More importantly, he became something of a bogeyman, blamed for insurrections in Egypt, Algeria, Tunisia and Saudi Arabia. Fisk bided his time. He was cautious. But as always, he went. That summer, Fisk comes back to Afghanistan in chaos. I mentioned previously that if a place find itself plunging into violence, and in the case of Afghanistan it was a invasion, a civil war and a proxy war, all rolled into one, then it is an uphill battle for stability. The survivors were seasoned fighters, ambitious and brutal. The communist government of Afghanistan was a ruin. The Soviet army pulled out and the Soviet Union itself collapsed shortly after. The Mujahideen were killing each other in the streets of Kabul. And Jalalabad, where Frisk went, was full of foreign aid agencies like Doctors Without Borders, the UN Development Programme, the International Committee of the Red Cross, and so on, doing what they could to fight a rapidly growing humanitarian crisis. But there was also an added ingredient, the drug barons. By that time, Afghanistan was producing 80% of Europe's heroin supply. Drug barons had poppy fields on the frontiers of Afghanistan, especially in the Nangara province, protected with armoured carriers and anti-aircraft guns. They even had technical advisors who would visit their fields and advise on how to grow the crop best. They provided masks for their workers and sometimes even health insurance. Fisk called it capitalism on an illegally ruthless scale. The effects of the operations could be seen in the streets of places like Jalalabad. For among the Afghan refugees who returned from Pakistan were the addicts. 
Fisk described them as young men with withered black arms and sunken eyes, wandering in the bazaar of the city. When Fisk asked the European UN official what could be done about such powerful organizations, this official apparently roared, Legalize drugs! Legalize the lot! It will be the end of the drug barons. They'll go broke and kill each other. But of course, the world will never accept that, so we'll go on fighting a losing war. The war that this official refers to is, of course, the war on drugs. The attitude to drug legalization, I like to believe, is quickly changing, but at the time, it was a fresh campaign, a very non-conventional, never-ending war, similar to the war on terror, which would come later. A place like Afghanistan was not getting any breaks. It is against this backdrop that Fisk would go on to meet Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan. I might have said before that he met him once there, but that is not quite true. His book is not always chronologically clear, but from what I can make out, Fisk would see Osama bin Laden once in July of 1996, and again in the winter of 1997. For the meeting in July, Fisk would be taken by car from Jalalabad through the Afghan countryside until darkness. On the way, he would meet someone only called Muhammad, an Arab who seems to know the area well. They would arrive at a secluded orchard. Here is what happens next. Muhammad beckoned me to follow him, and we skirted a small river and jumped across a stream until, in the insect-filled darkness ahead, we could see a sputtering paraffin lamp. Beside it sat a tall, bearded man in Saudi robes. Osama bin Laden stood up, his two teenage sons, Omar and Saad, beside him. Welcome to Afghanistan, he said. He was now 40, but looked much older than our last meeting in the Sudanese desert late in 1993. Walking towards me, he towered over his companions, tall, slim, with new wrinkles around those narrow eyes, leaner, his beard longer, but slightly flecked with grey. He had a black waistcoat over his white robe and a red checkered kufiya on his head, and he seemed tired. Others were gathering to listen to our conversation. We sat down on a straw mat, and a glass of tea was placed beside me. The conversation or interview that Fisk has with Bin Laden has a certain context which you should understand. I will try to distill it because Fisk describes it as a frighteningly exclusive history lesson, with Bin Laden's own interpretation, of course. All the while, an Egyptian man next to him would be scribbling notes beneath the light of the paraffin lamp, like some sort of medieval scribe. We know that Bin Laden first went to Afghanistan because of the Soviet invasion there. He viewed this invasion as a humiliation of the Muslim population. However, shortly after that war concluded, we had the first Gulf War in 1991, where the Iraqi army under Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. The Saudi monarchy saw that as a very real threat on their border. But when Osama bin Laden offered to guard Saudi Arabia, and by extension, the Islamic holy cities of Mecca and Medina, the royal family spurned him and took the help offered from the USA, an infidel nation which not only, according to bin Laden's view, drained the Saudi economy and sold them weapons at credit in the shadow of rising poverty, not only a colonial power attempting to exert its unwelcome influence, but it was also supporting another occupier and oppressor of Muslims, Israel. Yes, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which has been grinding on, was a factor in all of this. 
specifically during the Lebanese civil war, in which it and its militia allies killed hundreds of Palestinian and Lebanese civilians. In response, there was the Khobar bombing in Saudi Arabia earlier that same year. A residence for US troops in Saudi Arabia, which never left after the conclusion of the Gulf War, was bombed, and 19 US soldiers died. Bin Laden talked about the people who carried out this operation, selecting their target carefully, making sure to only kill the soldiers of the USA and not other nationals who had been involved in the coalition. He talked of advising the USA to withdraw and advising other nations, such as the United Kingdom, of the same. One of the things that stood out to Fisk as Bin Laden was basically delivering this lecture is that he he made a distinction between people and their governments. This is the case for Muslims, his brothers and sisters in faith, and their tyrannical rulers such as Saddam Hussein, who he detested and saw as an enemy of the people. He would refer to the sanctions that Iraq had been placed under following the Gulf War as a crusade, a very loaded term that helps us understand the religious and historical lens through which Bin Laden saw the world. This distinction also applied to ordinary Americans, who he claimed he was not waging a war against. Now Fisk, being a journalist and very brave, challenged him and pointed out that Americans elect their government to represent them, unlike those Arab Muslims who live under various tyrannical regimes. Bin Laden would dismiss that remark. In hindsight, this is an ominous moment because the September 11th attacks would happen five years later and claim the lives of thousands of Americans and other civilians. It is also interesting to think about how Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein's are not friends, they are enemies. But the invasion of Iraq in 2003 was partly justified by a claim, which now seems an obvious deception, that Saddam had Al-Qaeda training camps in the north. The second meeting in the winter of 1997 does not have as much detail in Fisk's book, but the journey there, as well as what is said to Fisk, are incredible moments. This time around, he would be taken up the passes towards certain mountains. He would be driven by an Arab contact. I believe it is probably Muhammad from the last time. This is what happens. And so we set off up the track that Osama bin Laden built during his jihad against the Russian army in the early 1980s. A terrifying, slithering two-hour odyssey along fearful ravines in rain and sleet, the windscreen misting as we climbed the cold mountain. When you believe in jihad, it is easy, he said, fighting with the steering wheel as stones scattered from the tires, tumbling down the precipice into the clouds below. After an hour, two armed Arabs, one with his face covered in a kufiya scarf, eyes peering at us through spectacles, holding an anti-tank rocket launcher over his right shoulder, came screaming from behind two rocks. Stop, stop, as the brakes were jammed on. I almost hit my head on the windscreen. Sorry, the bespectacled man said, putting down his rocket launcher. He pulled a metal detector from the pocket of his combat jacket, the red light flickering over my body in another search. The road grew worse as we continued, the jeep skidding back towards sheer cliffs, the headlights playing across the chasms on either side. Toyota is good for jihad, my driver said. I could only agree, noting that this was one advertising logo the Toyota company would probably forgo. This was a part that made me laugh, and those parts are rare in a book like this. It is always appreciated and nice to see Fisk's dry humour seeping from the page, 
but it reminds me of similar observations made about the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, how they all seem to favour Toyota pickup trucks. There were all sorts of articles pondering on the whys and wherefores, theorising about how reliable they must be and so on. But I digress. There was moonlight now, and I could see clouds both below us in the ravines and above us, curling around mountaintops, headlights shining on frozen waterfalls and ice-covered pools. Osama bin Laden knew how to build his wartime roads. Many an ammunition truck and tank had ground its way up here during the titanic struggle against the Russian army. Now the man who led these guerrillas, the first Arab fighter in the battle against Moscow, was back again in the mountains he knew. Somewhere up these mountains, at a height of about 5,000 feet, Fisk described seeing a valley in which there was grass and a winding, unfrozen stream. Far ahead would be a cliff face, under which the tents were pitched. But he also noticed something else interesting. As my eyes became accustomed to the light, I could make out a vast rectangle in the side of the mountain, a six meters high air raid shelter cut into the living rock by bin Laden's men during the Russian war. It was for a hospital, the Egyptian said. We brought our Mujahideen wounded here and they were safe from any Russian plane. No one could bomb us. We were safe. They would walk into this shelter, through it and into another little opening, a little paradise as Fisk calls it. There, under a tent, he would wait patiently for Osama bin Laden. Fisk describes what happens next as one of the most terrifying moments of his life, bearing in mind the amount of times he has been under fire. There was a sudden scratching of voice outside the tent, thin and urgent, like the soundtrack of an old movie. Then the flap snapped up and Bin Laden walked in, dressed in a turban and green robes. I stood up, half bent under the canvas, and we shook hands, both of us forced by the tarpaulin that touched our heads to greet other like Ottoman Pashas, bowed and looking up into the other's face. Again he looked tired, and I had noticed a slight limp when he walked into the tent. His beard was greyer, his face thinner than I remembered it. Yet he was all smiles, almost jovial, placing the rifle which he had carried into the tent on the mattress to his left, insisting on more tea for his guest. For several seconds he looked at the ground, then he looked at me with an even bigger smile, beneficent and, I thought at once, very disturbing. Mr. Robert, he began, and he looked around at the other men in combat jackets and soft brown hats who had crowded into the tent. Mr. Robert, one of our brothers had a dream. He dreamed that you came to us one day on a horse, that you had a beard, that you were a spiritual person. You wore a robe like us. This means you are a true Muslim. I want to pause a moment here. If I remember correctly, Fisk mentions previously how some of the followers of Osama bin Laden, especially those closest to him, held dreams in high regard. They considered them to be divine messages or signs and claimed to have received some themselves. I always knew that bin Laden and Al-Qaeda were of a particular religious bent, but for some reason I would have never guessed that dreams played such a role. I always imagined the militancy and the kind of spiritualism that would give dreams such weight would be somehow opposed. But it appears that this is not the case. But to carry on, this was terrifying. It was one of the most fearful moments of my life. I understood bin Laden's meaning 
a split second before each of his words. Dream, horse, beard, spiritual, robe, Muslim. The other men in the tent were all nodding and looking at me, some smiling, others silently staring at the Englishman who had appeared in the dream of the brother. I was appalled. It was both a trap and an invitation, and the most dangerous moment to be among the most dangerous men in the world. Was I imagining this? Could this not be just an elaborate rhetorical way of expressing traditional respect towards a visitor? Was this not merely the attempt of a Muslim? Many Westerners in the Middle East have experienced this to gain an adherent to the faith. Was bin Laden really trying, let us be frank, to recruit me? I feared he was, and I immediately understood what this might mean. A Westerner, a white man from England, a journalist on a respectable newspaper, would be a catch indeed. He would go unsuspected. He could become a government official, join an army, even, as I would contemplate just over four years later, learn to fly an airliner. I had to get out of this, quickly, and I was trying to find an intellectual escape tunnel, working on so hard in digging it, my brain was on fire. Now what I love about this section is that you can feel this panic from Fisk, how he tries to come to terms with what it all means. He begins by trying to rationalise it as a term of respect, and then it goes on to an attempt at recruitment, where the it, it all sort of dawns on him. I cannot even imagine being in this position. What he does next is very brave. Sheikh Hussama, I began, even before I had decided on my next words. Sheikh Hussama, I am not a Muslim. There was silence in the tent. I am a journalist, and the job of the journalist is to tell the truth, and that is what I intend to do in my life, to tell the truth. Bin Laden was watching me like a hawk, and he understood I was declining the offer. In front of his men, it was now Bin Laden's turn to withdraw, to cover his retreat gracefully. If you tell the truth, that means you are a good Muslim, he said. The men in the tent, in their combat jackets and beards, all nodded at this sage city. Bin Laden smiled. I was saved. As the old cliché goes, I breathed again. No deal. How many people can claim that Bin Laden tried to recruit them? How many of these people would be, as Fisk puts it, non-Muslim Westerners? I remember reading this section, and my jaw slowly drooping open at the gravity of what just happened. Bin Laden had the grace not to push the matter, and recognized that Fisk was not interested. Maybe he completely made up this dream as a lie, purely as a recruitment tool. Maybe it was genuine. Either way, it raises questions about the nature of truth, morality, and the logical fallacy of who is a true, in quotation marks, Muslim, and who is not. Nonetheless, and maybe to move the subject on quickly, Bin Laden would suddenly pay attention to Fisk's satchel, out of which is spilling various Arabic-language newspapers from Lebanon. He would seize upon them, clamber to the other side of the tent, and start reading them by the light of the paraffin lamp, which I think is becoming symbolic at this point. He would do this for half an hour straight, at times summoning the Egyptian scribe to look at something, and at others showing one of the other men an article. Fisk mentions this detail because he makes an observation. Was this really, I began to wonder, the centre of world terror? He puts that in quotation marks. Listening to the spokesman at the US State Department, reading the editorials, 
in the New York Times or the Washington Post, I might have been forgiven for believing that Bin Laden ran his terror network from a state-of-the-art bunker of computers and digitalized battle plans, flicking a switch to instruct his followers to assault another Western target. But this man seemed divorced from the outside world. Did he not have a radio? A television? When Bin Laden returns from his reading, Fisk describes him as more businesslike. Again, he talks about warnings against the USA, but Fisk notices a change in the tone and language. Now, the USA and Israel are essentially the same. He seems fixated and obsessed over the evil that the USA represents with its superpower status and far-reaching influence. Now, he does not just talk of killing soldiers, but of the, in quotation marks, Jews in Palestine. He claims that certain members of the Saudi royal family, as well as the security services in Saudi Arabia, support him. Fisk mentions that he later finds this to be true, and perhaps we will find out the details ourselves at some point. But what remains the same about bin Laden is what set him apart from all other figureheads in the Arab world. He does not brush into his speech. Instead, he pauses and thinks about what he says, which makes his last words to our intrepid journalist all the more powerful. Mr. Robert, from this mountain upon which you are sitting, we broke the Russian army and we destroyed the Soviet Union, and I pray to God that he will permit us to turn the United States into a shadow of itself. Now, I don't know how much credit he can take for the collapse of the Soviet Union. I'm sure that uh, there are many other factors that contributed to it. But on the way back from bin Laden's camp, Fisk notices a light above the mountains to the north, incandescent and leaving a trail of golden smoke. It was a comet that was discovered just two years earlier. What follows next, in hindsight, is quite tragic. So we stopped the Toyota and climbed out to watch the fireball as it blazed through the darkness above us. The Al-Qaeda men and the Englishmen, all filled with awe at this spectacular, wondrous apparition of cosmic energy, unseen for more than 4,000 years. Mr. Robert, do you know what they say when a comet like this is seen? It was the Algerian, standing next to me now, both of us craning our necks up towards the sky. It means that there is going to be a great war. And so we watched the fire blaze through the pageant of stars and illuminate the firmament above us. There would be a great war, yet another one for Afghanistan that would last 20 years. Bin Laden would not make the USA a shadow of its former self, but instead would escape to Abdabad in Pakistan until he is finally found and assassinated, while the country is once again left in ruins. I want to close this episode off with some numbers provided to us by Fisk of the aftermath of the Soviet-Afghan war. Over one million Afghans would die, four million would be wounded, and six million would be driven out as refugees. One of the biggest killers would be the landmines spread across the war-torn landscape by the Soviets, turning much of the country into dead land that no one dared to work. The Russians would spend an estimated $35 billion on the war, losing $2.5 billion in aircraft in a single year. The USA would spend $10 billion supporting the rebels, while Saudi Arabia would spend $525 million in just two years on opposition parties. 
Pakistani intelligence services would reveal that between three to 4,000 Arab fighters were active at any one time, and a total of 25,000 Arabs would engage in combat. When the Soviet Union withdrew and faced its own demise, the USA and Pakistan would abandon Afghanistan to its fate, to a continued civil war and a drugs war, until, in a tragic repeat of history, it would get invaded once again in 2001. When the Taliban swiftly retook control after the recent coalition withdrawal, I glanced at the newspaper articles expressing their fears of brutal Taliban rule, and, against my own advice, I read the comments under them. Many asked why Afghans did not just fight harder for their rights, why they did not fight the Taliban also. Some would even criticize Afghans as being cowardly for not standing up to bullies. This is why history and perspective is important. If an obvious, simplistic, so-called solution offered by our enlightened keyboard warriors has not been used, then there is usually a very good explanation. It is not just that the Taliban are made up of Afghans themselves and are a product of their history, of the invasions, the civil wars, the poverty and the violence, but also that of ordinary people caught up in it themselves with a series of rulers that have learned brutality and were seasoned by wars not of their design. The lack of control over their destiny is a tragedy here. I do not like to leave things on a dark note, but sometimes as human beings I feel that we have a lot to learn from such tragedies, and I hope that the notion of destiny and control will be food for thought. Thank you for listening, and I hope you've learned something new as I have.